Hi, this is Craig Lois. Uh, if you're here with me today, it's to explore the, con the topic of penalties and no coverage exposure in New York. Uh, if you can see me, I'm waving my hands right now. There are audio options that should be in your handout, uh, both listen through your computer and also uh, call in over the phone. Um, thanks for being here, everybody. And if you are here, uh, it's because we had to re-register everyone. Uh, I by accident erased this session of the webinar. So just a little quick housekeeping. If you got a new email yesterday that said, hey, you're welcome to the webinar series, uh, that's the reason why. We deleted this entire noon session um, which had previously been closed, and uh, so sorry about that. Um, if you are here today, uh, you're here for our New York webinar series. This Today is the third Monday of the month. Next Monday, which is the fourth Monday of the month, that's our New Jersey webinar series. Uh, this is a part of our overall outreach that we do for clients um, and, and to train our partners all over the place. Um, this webinar series was originally conceived as sort of a companion to my book, and if you have my book, uh, today we're in chapter 19 of the book. Um, this is just a small part of what we do in terms of uh, training and teaching in this community. We also um, have a lot of articles on our website. In fact, some of our, our new colleagues, uh, Joe Melchione, Jeremy Janis, have started writing articles on that website, so please check it out. Of course, we do the monthly webinars, and we also do a newsletter that comes out uh, never more than twice a month. Usually, it's about once a month. We try to keep it as spam-free as we can. Okay, if you're here today, um, we're here today to talk about penalties in New York, and I want to give us a basic overview of this topic. There's going to be plenty of time for questions uh, because this is a tough topic, and it's one of those areas where we're always asking questions or answering questions about it. Um, uh, the typical question that I'm answering is, what do we do now that we've been penalized? So we're going to talk a little bit about how to avoid penalties. Uh, but more importantly, I think we're going to talk about what happens next, because they're almost unavoidable in New York. Uh, there are some statistics in the handout about the volume and the number of penalties that we see in this jurisdiction. But it is incredible uh, what they penalize you for. And the types of things we're seeing penalties for are just the typical run-of-the-mill papers not filed on time. Uh, but really brutal penalties, uh, for example, uh, the penalties for failing to file denials timely or for um, improper denying of cases. That's something the board's going out after now. Uh, and then, of course, what do we do when we pay uh, a judgment late? Okay, so we're going to talk about all of that. I'd like to encourage everyone to please ask questions. It makes it a lot more interesting to get actual questions. I'm going to hold the questions to the end, although I can start to see them kind of pop up on the screen as I go. I'll go to the uh, questions. This screen will black out. You'll just get me, and I'll read the questions out loud so that we can all follow along with the, uh, the questions that we're getting. Usually, the most interesting stuff comes in the questions. In the handout, we covered some of the most basic penalties that we see all the time. Uh, if you're defending cases in New York as on the carrier, you're paying penalties. Uh, you know, the joke is, yeah, there are penalties, and we'll talk about them today, that apply to claimants and that apply to claimants' attorneys, but do they really get implemented? Uh, do they really get penalized the way you get penalized? Absolutely not. Um, and a good example is just looking at your screen right now, the $1,000 penalty under Section 25-3 for a frivolous adjournment. Right. Uh, claimants, claimants don't appear for a listing. Uh, if they're unrepresented, 
Maybe the case will get NFA'd, that means no further action. More typically, the case just gets pushed. A claimant uh, appears, and even a represented claimant, appears for a hearing, and they didn't bring their witness, or they don't have all their proofs, or they didn't bring their work search form, or any one of another thousand excuses that we hear every day. Um, they're never getting whacked for that $1,000 penalty for causing a frivolous adjournment or not being ready to go. It's just absolutely un unlikely. Now, um, that penalty, that frivolous adjournment penalty, that's the one we want to avoid, and that's in the context of a denied case where we're appearing for a pre-hearing conference or for a trial, an expedited proceeding. Uh, there are other penalties, and the $100 penalty, for just simply being unprepared for a hearing. Uh, the board calls a lot of hearings and cases, although there is a uh, new trend where they're going to do try to do more bench decisions, more bench memos, uh, approval of Section 32s over the phone, that type of stuff that we're welcoming. Uh, but the board loves to issue penalties. If you are adjusting these cases, you're seeing penalties all the time. Uh, one of the most typical things that happens is my self-insured ask me, Greg, why are we getting penalty penalized all the time in New York? And I say, well, this is this is the cost of doing business a little bit in New York. Very difficult uh, to avoid them because there are so many of them. Um, New York has also, as of last April, started um, enforcing what they're calling payer compliance. And this is a board initiative that's essentially attempting to uh, get the carriers to pay claims quicker initially. Uh, they're also uh, issuing instructions that even if the claimant has no medical putting them out of work, uh, that the carrier is to begin paying them benefits at the minimum rate, despite the fact that there's no medical, uh, just based on the word of the claimant that they're not appearing. Um, the payer compliance initially was, uh, of course, that it was going to be phased in, and uh, there's a lot of information in the handout about how to comply. Um, basically, uh, we have uh, very strict timelines, 18 days, 10-day timelines, uh, from the date of knowledge of an injury to begin paying uh, benefits. And again, the board's instruction now is essentially uh, to begin paying despite the fact that there may be no medical putting the, uh, the claimant out of work. Uh, so that's a little bit about payer compliance and probably I'll get some questions about that. Uh, no insurance. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about the types of penalties that are built into the act itself and the types of penalties that uh, we see uh, defending on the on behalf of small employers. This is typically something that we see on behalf of an actual small employer contacting us because they failed to place coverage. Their coverage was canceled. Um, you know, we, we, you'll see these uh, in, when you're in practice. Um, and basically, New York's got a brutal, brutal uh, uh, statutory scheme for punishing uninsured employers. In fact, I've been in court defending uninsured employers and had sitting next to me some uh, poor homeowner uh, who didn't uh, pay taxes on his nanny or didn't get uh, workers' compensation insurance on their nanny and watch them get whacked with gigantic penalties, $60,000, $70,000, $80,000 fines. And the reason for that is the board has a strict statutory scheme which says basically for every 10 days that you, the employer, do not have uh, coverage, you're whacked for $2,000. So in the case where the nanny gets injured at work and she doesn't know what to do and she finally files a workers' compensation claim and the board investigates, we call that a C-49 investigation uh, because of the form that it's filed on with the board, uh, the board is basically going to say, well, you are uninsured for 12 months and they'll whack uh, the poor homeowner for 32 or, or 26 times uh, that number 2000 and it comes out to a huge amount. So it's very high.
The other side of that is the claimant gets an election of remedies. So if the employer fails to place workers' compensation coverage, yes, uh, they can be, uh, a claim can be brought under the Workers' Comp Act, and the employer is then directly liable to reimburse the uninsured employer's fund or, or directly uh, pay the claimant for the value of those injuries and either medical treatment and lost time. But that's not where it ends. The employee can decide not to go into workers' compensation court. They can take an election out, and instead, uh, they can sue the employer directly in civil court. Now, this is extremely dangerous for the employer because their defenses are all barred. The sort of defenses of contributory negligence and assumption of risk are going to be, uh, uh, by statute, they are removed from the defenses. So the employer basically walks into a civil case with a jury sitting in the box, uh, pricing out the value of these injuries directly against this employer. So that's dangerous. Uh, there's also criminal penalties for the employer who fails to place workers' compensation insurance, and they can be quite significant in terms of fines. Illegal employment. New York, uh, the, the entire statute was designed uh, after a terrible fire, uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, and when this statute was implemented over 100 years ago, one of the, the reasons there was so much support for our workers' comp statute was because children uh, who had been working in a factory actually burned to death inside that factory. Um, New York has very strict or very uh, thorough, very careful descriptions of what is illegal employment for minors. Section 14A describes any, who is a minor. And then New York, because they love to have lots of, lots of statutes, um, have carved out many, many, many exceptions to the, uh, the rule about minors. Generally speaking, anyone under the age of 17 cannot work in any type of factory setting. Um, but then there are many exceptions, and those exceptions are for things like caddies, babysitters, any type of casual employment. You know, you're just raking somebody's leaves or shoveling their walk uh, one time a year, something like that. Uh, child actors are carved out of minor employment. Newspaper carriers, of course, I don't think those exist anymore. Um, people who work home on a farm, and then there's a whole subsection of farm workers that are things like picking berries for a certain amount of time is allowed if you're a minor. And then one of the strangest ones I found, I found was uh, being a bridge caddy at a bridge tournament. I'm presu- I don't know anything about bridge, but I'm understanding that someone who just like literally is carrying around decks of cards and handing them out. Um, those are pretty rarely seen um, uh, uh, cases uh, in my entire case population. It's just a few. Most of my employers are pretty careful about not hiring minors. Uh, here's where it gets tricky, though. Uh, let's say a claimant, an employee, misrepresents their age to the employer. It doesn't matter under the uh, Workers' Compensation Act and the case law. Even if the employee misrepresents their age, uh, the employer is still due the penalty uh, under the Workers' Compensation Act and the penalty for hiring a minor worker. And that penalty is double the cost of the compensation uh, recovered by the claimant. Uh, and why that's interesting is that's not paid by the insurance carrier. That's paid by the employer directly. In fact, the, the statute carves that out and says the employer, you're liable for that directly. You can't get reimbursed from that from your insurance carrier. So that's something that the employer directly feels. Uh, and there's no good faith defense. There's no, well, they presented me with uh, false working papers that said they were of a certain age. You've got to verify. And even if you verify it, uh, it could, presumably if you'd verified it, that you wouldn't have hired that worker. Uh, we had a very interesting case in this office where the claimant was both an undocumented alien and had presented false working papers. Uh, in other words, they were a minor. They were under 17 years of age, and they were an undocumented or we call an illegal worker. 
In that case, we were able to argue that not only did this person misrepresent their age, they actually misrepresented their entire identity. So it would have been impossible for the employer to verify uh, that they were or were not eligible for work based on age because they were ineligible for other reasons. So that's a little bit of an exception. All right, let's talk about the biggest problem, the biggest penalty we see, the most dangerous penalty we see, and this one is late payment of awards. Uh, under the Act, uh, Section 253F, uh, the employer has only 10 days to pay an award uh, that has been uh, approved by the board. This is an extraordinarily strict statutory uh, reading. There is not going to be a lot of wiggle room here with the law judges. If you pay late, guess what? First of all, claimant's attorneys are very motivated to recover this money for their client. The claimant is going to get 20% of the value of the compensation that was late. And in the case of a, for example, a section 32 for $50,000 or $100,000, that could be a very sizable amount of money. So you've got a very motivated employee and, and claimant uh, to enforce that right. Uh, very difficult to prevail uh, if you, these uh, penalties are levied against you as the carrier or employer. Uh, generally speaking, uh, you can appeal them. That's what we do almost every time. But that, and the reason we appeal it is because the appeal stays the payment of that benefit. So that's from last week's uh, or last month's um, presentation from Yusra Hussein about the effect of an appeal uh, staying an obligation to pay benefits. Uh, it's really difficult. And then if you do file that appeal, and we'll talk about it in a second, there is a penalty for a frivolous appeal. So what has been done or become uh, sort of practice as Let's say the penalty that would be due to the claimant is $5,000. Uh, sometimes that is paid instead of as a penalty. They'll pay, they'll make a payment of M&T, uh, medical or travel expenses reimbursement. Uh, that's the type of way that could be sidestepped. Um, often we'll contact our adversary and say, you know, if you, uh, try to enforce this right to this penalty. We're going to absolutely uh, appeal this case, and we'll and we'll slow the whole process down to try to push them into doing an M&T. Very difficult to do, and not doesn't always work. Uh, and also, if we file that appeal, and this is one of the more interesting penalties, uh, there actually is a penalty for a frivolous appeal. And if the board determines that appeal is filed simply for the purpose of delay or for a dilatory tactic um, or simply to um, had no grounds, was just simply frivolous, the board will then uh, penalize the party appealing $500, of course, payable to the claimant. Uh, that's in Section 23. That's the section that authorizes appeal under the statute. Of course, uh, carriers look at this and they say, well, look, I'm going to get um, hit for a 20% penalty on the award. I might as well appeal because the appeal uh, penalty will be only $500. I caution you against that type of thinking because it will be $500 plus the 20% penalty. Uh, so those are the most dangerous appeals. And frankly, the ones that we are, sorry, not th the most dangerous penalties, uh, often the most painful penalties because they're so expensive, 20% of a overall settlement or award. Okay. Um, Let's talk a little bit about penalties against the claimant and claimant's attorneys. Uh, there are penalties that can be enforced against them. For example, not being prepared at a hearing can get the case discontinued, and there can also be penalties against claimant's attorney. In practice, 
though, those are rarely, if ever, enforced. I have been in many trial situations where the claimant um, has failed to produce a witness or failed to produce documentary evidence. Generally speaking, the judge will not preclude it, will often give the claimant sort of the benefit of the doubt and will allow the claimant to present those proofs again at a later time, uh, which in our case, we would probably be penalized and likely have a decision against us. So in my experience, penalties against the claimant are rarely, if ever, um, enforced by the board or allowed by the board. Of course, we ask for them. Okay, so those are all of my prepared remarks. Let me go right now quickly and see if we have any um, questions from the audience. Give me one sec to pull this up. Okay, uh, question number one uh, comes from Gregory, who says, will an employer be issued a penalty if the claimant reported an injury late uh, for example, and then he gives some dates, 16, 25 daters, days later reporting the injury. Of course, we're going to dispute that the injury report was presented to us late. In fact, late notice of an injury would be a defense to the claim. Uh, that's different, though, than the payer compliance statute, uh, which is going to impute knowledge to the employer, particularly if the claimant is losing time from work. Uh, so that is a little bit of a distinction. But no, absolutely, that could be disputed if the employee waits months or days or weeks to report an injury to you. Uh, absolutely, that would be uh, something that would be considered. Okay, let's go on. Okay, uh, Janet asked the question, Greg, what about your homeowner's insurance? Would that cover the nanny? Um, is there workers' compensation insurance under your homeowner's insurance? Okay, great question. You have to elect for it. Uh, when you're placing coverage or insurance for your home, uh, if you're like me, I go to one company and it does like my home, my house, my umbrella policy, my cars, everything. Uh, when you do that, there is a box you can check which says I'm electing to have workers' compensation coverage. I strongly recommend you check that box, but it, in most coverages, it's not going to be standard. It's going to have to be something you elect. Uh, you'll discover if you do not have a full-time employee in your home, if you don't have a nanny or uh, Janet may have a gardener or something like that. Um, if you don't have that full-time employee in your home, you're going to discover that that workers' comp insurance is very, 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 very affordable. I mean, we're talking maybe a dollar per month, very low premium, generally speaking, because the type of uh, work uh, people that will be uh, providing services to you in your home, and I mean, think about something like a plumber or a landscaper, generally speaking, they're going to be insured. It's going to be very difficult for their employees to impute employment to you. Uh, so it would be very difficult for the homeowner, to, for example, to be found the direct employer of a plumber who's coming in and providing specialized uh, plumbing services. Generally speaking, those types of independent contractors, uh, you don't have to worry about. And even people doing casual work on your uh, on your home, you know, if you, you hire the neighbor kid to shovel, uh, do you have to have workers' compensation coverage? Well, in New York, the answer is no, if it's very intermittent, if it's seasonal, and if it's what we consider casual. So uh, this person, that's not what they're making their living at doing, shoveling your walk every third snowstorm. Okay. Uh, Janet asks another question. Uh, you mentioned caddy under Section 14A. Explain what you mean by that. I think that means golf caddy. And there's a lot of little exceptions uh, to um, when you can employ a minor. And I'm not a golfer. Uh, I've been golfing. I'm terrible at it. Uh, but I understand that you go there and they assign you a caddy neighbor or you pull one out of the pool and uh, they carry around your clubs. Is that person your employee? And if they get injured retrieving one of your balls, can they sue you directly? No, they're not your employee. And 
uh, generally speaking, the golf course can have minors doing that job. That's what that exception means. It means they don't have to have caddies who are over the age of 18. They can be minors doing it just for the summer, summer caddies. Okay. All right, let's see. Okay, so Dennis McGinn, sorry, sorry to say your last name, sorry. Dennis asks, hey, Greg, isn't the Section 23 frivolous appeal payable by counsel? Yes, it is. I don't know if I said it wasn't, but it absolutely is. That's You're absolutely correct about that. Um, okay, Mark asked the question, Greg, how successful are you in defending an employer who has an undocumented worker who deceives them? Um, and then he makes another question. I will answer that one. I'll answer the first one. Uh, unsuccessful. Everybody's unsuccessful. Um, the, if the employee deceives the employer about their age, uh, that it, there is no good faith defense saying, well, he told me he was X amount uh, age or he, he provided me with some uh, documentation and I just uh, I didn't check on it. Uh, the one time we've been successful is where we had an undocumented illegal employee who both misrepresented his identity, wasn't even the right person, and the age. So that's a little bit of a distinction there. Uh, <laughs> Helene says she likes my Caddyshack reference. Uh, okay, uh, and this is a great question. It's coming from Gloria Jean, who says, Greg, if the state is now saying that you have to pay benefits, I'm going to fix your thing because I think there might be a type of, if the state is now saying you have to start benefits, even if you don't have medical, uh, will we still be able to die once we get the medical? Yes. Okay, so the payer compliance um, instructions are, have been issued by the state, and they're basically trying to get us to start paying a little bit, even though the person, we know they're losing time, we just don't have the medical in yet, and so the state's instructions are to just start paying, but absolutely, you get that medical in, and it says got injured snowboarding, got injured doing something else, we're not paying anymore. In fact, we're going to put the brakes in, and that's probably where we're going to file that Troy-04, that denial type. Um, subsequent report of injury if you haven't already filed a FROI. So uh, if you've already filed a FROI that just said name I'm paying without prejudice. So yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. All right. Janet asked a question, which we talked a little bit about last week. Under appeal of a decision, do we continue paying the award? And if we prevail, do we receive a credit for the award paid to date? So typically, no, we don't pay the disputed part of the decision or award when we're appealing. Uh, that's the initial level of appeal to the board panel. Once we get beyond the board panel, so we're going to New York's the third, the appellate division, uh, or the full board, uh, there is no stay on payments. Uh, however, in the appellate division, there is a fund which will reimburse us for the amounts that we released or paid that we should never have paid. Okay. All right, and that is all the questions. All right, so um, let's continue. Hit play. Okay. Uh, thanks for joining us. I just want to talk to you a little bit about next month's topic. Uh, next month, we're gonna we're gonna restart. Um, remember, this uh, webinar series is, is supposed to be a workers' comp 101 for the state of New York. And we're going to restart next week, uh, going back to the beginning. Uh, we're going to have all different new presenters because, hey, we're a new firm and we've got new attorneys here. And we're going to start working our way right back through all of the foundational topics that led us to where we are today. 
Uh, so please join us next month. Next month, we'll be talking about who is an employee, which is we got into a little bit of that today. Uh, is the nanny who works for me uh, or, or is it my casual employee, an employee, those types of questions. Um, then in May, we'll get to defenses. And then in June, we'll do what is the going and coming defense. We'll start drilling down into very specific defenses and when they apply. Uh, we're going to uh, revisit this. Please remember there's two sessions. Please join us next month when we talk about employees, employers. Uh, please feel free to reach out to me. I know I, today I got to all the questions. Sometimes I don't. You can always email me with your questions or call me with your questions. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next month.